You're listening to Influx Collective, the podcast, Walking Amongst the Rubble, UndocuQueer Pride. I'm learning to let my sorrow uh, fall apart. I take pride in being a survivor. I hate the American dream. <laughs> my name is Corey Brappy Rudd, and I'm one of your co hosts. And I'm your other host, Diana Gutierrez. We started as a queer poetry reading series, uh, but basically our mission is to connect LA-based poets, promote queer events, and provide a space and a platform for queer creators and queer content. And Influx is a place for audience members to hear stories that reflect their own and for performers to find an audience that understands. Supporter programming at Patreon. Uh, we are at patreon.com slash Influx Collective without an E. Hello, hello, everyone. My name is Diana Gutierrez, and I'm here with Jennifer Tamayo. They're a queer, formerly undocumented poet. So, yeah, let's uh, let's get into it. Um, so I, I normally like to start with yeah checking in and then also um, what, what are some things that you'd like to share about yourself or just, you know, aside from your poetry? Yeah, most absolutely. You? Thank you for starting that way. Um I'd also like to hear about you as well um, and how your day's going and, you know, a little bit about you. Um, I think one of the one of like the most important ways to start for me is where I am and what land I'm on. And I am on Eno and Saponi or Kanichi Saponi territory, um, currently known as currently in this space time known as North Carolina. Um, I'm outside of Greensboro, um, but I am on <clears throat> and always will be on stolen indigenous territory. Um, and so that's always how I like to start. I am holding a crystal quartz um, stone for clarity so that I can be clear my answers to you and or not even clear, just be um, present in my answers. Uh, these I love talking about practice and about poetry and getting to know other people. And yet it's like, I don't even know what I'm saying half the time and who I am and what my practice looks like. So, um, so it's always an adventure to sit down and try to spend time with another person and talk about like words. One of, whenever I sit down to talk about my work or practice with another person. It's like an adventure partially because I don't really know what I'm doing half the time, you know, like, or have the kind of clarity or focus to express what I'm thinking about doing and all of that's always changing. So I, I just kind of wanted to acknowledge that, like that feeling that's running through me of excitement and nervousness. Same, same. I agree with the excitement, nervousness, and also jumping into yeah just like having a conversation especially uh with someone like yourself who has written extensively in such a beautiful way uh so yeah i, I can't wait to start yay cool um so uh yeah, yeah regarding my day um it's been what have I been doing? I've honestly just tried to recenter <laughs> myself. Yeah, yesterday we had a really huge influx event in person. It was our first in-person event after a long time, and um, yeah, I think that I, you know, as like a ambivert, I often um, 
sorry, I have to get my dog away from the room. He's getting very curious. Um, okay, so yeah, often as an ambivert, I feel like I am going to be able to be socially in tune and like uh, no energy is going to be spent, but I forget that I'm human. And today I did wake up kind of tired. Um, and yeah, just like <laughs> recentering was really good. So um, I, yeah, I, I woke up like three hours ago, which was nice. Uh, uh, it was like 1 p.m. So definitely resting was really great. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love resting and I love sleeping. It's like one of my favorite things to do. I know that's weird. It's weird to say like sleeping is one of my favorite things to do, but it really, it really is. I'm glad you got a little bit of rest. <laughs> No, it's so regenerative. Uh, and, you know, now that we're like talking about resting, um, I guess I could start off with uh, a question about mm -hmm. one of your poems, because I really, really vibe with it as uh, a woman of color, as a formerly undocumented person, or just like a human in general. Mm -hmm. uh, Summer of Hate. I thought that, yeah, it, it was really amazing to hear how there was a lot of um feelings of while you're still in this beautiful time of the year like the summer you're still experiencing so much internally of turmoil that you are undergoing um and so as you're trying to rest you're also trying to battle all of these demons so it's like uh mm -hmm. the resting never stops so yeah, I'd love to hear well, more about that. I, I, every time summer's about to come, I'm like, is this the year I'm going to publish Summer of Hate, like in print form? Because I believe if I'm correct, like Summer of Hate pretty much exists as a video performance. Um, I've been looking for it to find a more permanent home. And yet it's really, that poem is really it's just like so slippery and I love it because it's so alive. It's always changing. Like every summer, every summer of hate, like I, I come back and I'm like, is this the year that summer of hate is going to um, solidify itself and tell me what it's trying to say or do? Um, I think that poem emerged out of um, a lot of, it was, it was like, maybe when I was living in New York about 10 years ago, I started writing that poem and it was really about, um, when I first became more seriously, um, part of a, a politically active community against, um, you know, police terror in New York city, um, and police terror against black people in particular. I, I was thinking about, um, that time of my life where I was really, really sort of active and like protesting, um, and pretty much like on the, on this, just trying to be like on the streets in ways that made me really nervous as a person who, you know, my documented status is like, I'm a permanent resident, but like, it's all really complicated in the sense that like, you know, if you're a permanent resident and you commit a felony, like you can get deported, you know? So like you get caught in the wrong circumstance with police or with like, 
you know, you get caught drunk driving, you get caught doing a, a series of things, like you will lose your status, uh, a status that I like fought very long and hard to get. And so, um, being in front of like police and other kinds of, um, police bodies, whether it's like the migrant, like border patrol cops or cops themselves, like that space is triggering in lots of ways, but I felt it, that it was necessary for me to be in the streets at this point in my life. And I was just kind of channeling this collective anger that I was just sort of starting to tap into that I was able to connect to like my own immigrant past. It was like the first time I was starting to make the connection that like me being detained at the border was similar to other systems of like incarceration. And I know that sounds so silly, (laughs) but I had never really made that connection before. Um, I understood that carcerality was like a violent system and space, but I didn't see myself as as somebody who had been subject to that system, um, as somebody who was detained at the border and incarcerated with my, my mother, um, when we had tried, when we crossed. And so coming into that space and understanding our connection, my connection with other people who had been detained or had been subject to carceral systems just fueled this like love and also anger at the same time. And so that poem comes out of kind of that chaos of like suddenly seeing yourself in connection with this like historically violent entity. Um, and so I, I wanted to write about that. And that poem has kept changing and changing and changing a lot. Um, I can't, it doesn't seem to want to settle down, which I love, but also I, I would love to like, you know, publish it in print form instead of it just being kind of like a video performance. Yeah, I'd love to see the poem in print just because it it was really like catching, captivating to hear the refrain. So I'd love to just see it uh, visually. I always love when visually there is the repetition that that way you could see the emphasis of that feeling as well. Yeah, I'd love to also hear about like the visual part of that poem. What how did that come about? How did you plan to set up just that video in the bathroom? (laughs) Yeah, I've done like a ton of performances in my bathroom. I find it to be like this (laughs) feminized space of like, it's like where you go when you're at your job and you need to cry, but you don't want to cry in front of your like terrible boss. So you like go to the bathroom and you cry or like, you know, a whole whole bunch of bodily things happen in the bathroom. Like bathroom is a place of like privacy, but also like a feminized space of like power and comfort, right? Like taking baths or it's like a huge thing for me. So I actually, one of my last performances I did online. I was talking to this Latinx group. I'm trying to remember the college. Anyway, I was thinking about how my performance work would translate through like Zoom. I hate Zoom readings. I just like, oh God, just kill me. Like I can't, I I love like a live, a live Mm -hmm. audience. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to make it something cool. I'm going to set up the camera and it's going to be a performance, a Zoom performance from my bathroom and I'm going to take like a shower. And I had a nightgown on and I just took a shower and did a reading from my shower and it was beautiful and fun for me and like fun for the audience. And I was like, okay, maybe I can exist like this through the pandemic, like doing readings online. But so that the bathroom is a special place for like how work 
the water, the movement of the water has always been a space where I'd, yeah. 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 So yeah, so I did a performance from the shower and and the sort of movement of the water and the watery energy of a life force, the co- the way that water connects different bodies of land, the way the water is connected to my body, like all of that is sort of an important creative energy in my work, but Summer of Hate came from wanting to publish this poem but knowing that it wasn't ready to be a printed poem. It wasn't ready to be in print but it did want to be shared somehow. It was also a commissioned piece for a gallery in California. They had asked me to come up with a piece and I thought, okay, maybe the poem wants to exist as a video poem. And so my partner and I often collaborate. They work with photography and moving image. And so we use it as a space to collaborate. And what you're seeing in that in Summer of Hate, that video are live improvised projections. So I'm literally holding a projector and projecting images through my bathroom walls. And I was thinking about all of the things that I want projected into this bathroom wall, whether it's actual words, whether it's images of sage, whether it's images of my own body refracted. There's images of like this egg yolk in terms of the kind of limpia, like a cleansing of the body. And so I just kind of played a lot of my work comes through like improvised play and seeing what appears in the improvisation, in the playfulness. And so I just held this projector with all these images that I wanted to see and just kind of danced with the projector in my bathroom. And that's how the visual kind of came about. And I knew I wanted the water in there and also my body. And I wanted just to make my bathroom into this beautiful space of both a place of release and also a place of repair and recovery. And because the the poem deals with so much intensity. I thought that if the poem could live in the bathroom, it might be able to rest a little bit. And so that's where that Mm. idea kind of came from. Wow. That was all really cool. I really like what you said about, (laughs) yeah, the, I, I remember seeing this post today about how as when we're younger, we really are not expecting to spend that much time in bathrooms crying when we're adults. Mm -hmm. And I felt that I was like, yeah, I never imagined like when I was younger, I imagined like becoming older, but never really, you know, recluding to a place uh, to feel safe. So I, I definitely vibe with you on that about how sometimes you just need that private space, but also like have it be yours for the time that you're there. And also that it's a feminized space. I think that there's something both communal and private about the bathroom because there's also like public restrooms. And I remember like working at a law firm. I worked at a law firm, an immigration law firm when I first got out of college and I'd go in there and cry or just get away from somebody. And then there'd be somebody in the stall next to me who would be like, are you okay? You know, somebody I didn't know. And that maybe it's an illusion that it's like a private place or maybe it's also the way that we know that there's, there will be people before us and afterwards in the bathroom. I think all of us do. Like we all have bodies and our bodies are things that cry and shit and piss and <laughs> want to soak in water. And so I would say that probably, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
the repair and recovery of it, of all of our areas in our body, definitely. <laughs> also, as far as the images that were projected onto the bathtub and the water, you said that they came from a f- feeling of like refraction. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, I think some of it comes from... I think a lot of times when I am working in that way that's led by the images that I want to see and images that I find pleasurable or pleasing to see, at the moment of the making, it's a lot of it is just like instinctual in the sense of trusting my senses, my sight and my sound and the things that I want to hear without understanding too much of the sense of what am I actually trying to say with this particular image. And I really, in that video, I really chopped up my body in ways that I think in the moment I was processing something I didn't understand about this feeling of being my body being refracted, my body being in pieces, my body processing information that I that I'm still processing. And only now do I kind of start seeing that video as like me putting the pieces of my body together into ways that are sometimes like grotesque and sometimes beautiful and sometimes contradictory and finding a sense of pleasure inside of that, that coming together of my own body. And so a lot of it isn't about in the moment it's about trusting my own, the images that are coming to my head that I want to create and put into the world, knowing that five years later, two months later, 10 years later, I will make sense of that thing in a different way. And I think a lot of it was about allowing my body to exist in pieces the way that sometimes I feel like my spirit exists in pieces. My spirit is refracted back from like my homeland to the current place that I am an uninvited visitor and trying to make sense of that refracted, fractured body, not as like this wounded, broken thing, but a body with a whole bunch of openings that has a whole bunch of possibilities. So I want to go back to the conversation about your body in not just like the poem, but also in your work in general. I was reading the interview that you had with Cornelia Barber and you were talking about, she asked you a question about how, whether you relate to your like a political body or your language body most. And then you said that they're both really intertwined. And I hope I'm not chopping that up. And I thought that, you know, as a formerly undocumented person, I felt so much like resonance when I heard that because, yeah, it's like your body is this space that holds the mess of who you've become as a result of so many political oppressions, but also like it holds potential. And you have these beautiful worlds that exist as a result and still worlds that you're still discovering. So yeah, I'd love to hear your take on how you describe your body. What do you feel like when you're just thinking about your body? Uh, Yeah. First, thank you for, you know, Posing the question and also for the contextualization of that interview, I think that it's telling, you know, I think that when you've been through the traumatizing experience of having your body become a problem, you know, because the migrant and the undocumented migrant's body is a problem for the state. And so when your body gets translated into that space, that's a traumatic experience. And suddenly your body becomes this place of trauma and terror 
and also a space of possibility as well, as you're saying. And I think for me, there's a disconnect between what happens when I publish a piece of writing or a book and the way that those poems get suddenly like get to move into the world in a very particular way. They're bound and they are, you know, out there. And a lot of the times, the reason I bring performance into my poetry practice, I see them as one, I see them as connected, is because my body wants to kind of experience some of the liberatory and expansive feelings that my poems get to experience. And so that's why I turn to performance a lot to be able to let my body be a little bit free, even if only for a moment. That's the beginning of an answer. I, it's this, like the questions around the body are always really hard for me. You know, as somebody who's experienced like sexual assault, physical abuse, who's both witnessed it and experienced it. And, you know, we should probably make sure to give a trigger warning at the beginning of um, the interview mm-hmm. as somebody who, who's experienced that it's really hard for me to think about what my body is trying to process that my poems are creating space for. So in some ways it's like I, as a poet, write the poems, but sometimes I think the poems write themselves so that my body can process something, either whether it's in performance mm. or in the writing of the poem itself. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, yeah, totally. That resonates with me. There was just one line specifically in the interview that felt so compelling that was like, you can have so many degrees, but your body still remembers that, you know, English is still your second language. And I thought that, again, like very much resonated. I've been in this country for 20 God knows what years, but I still in my body remember so much of what it felt like to be in Peru. And to have experienced just being mm-hmm. like standing on land that is Andean. And, and yeah, I also read this definition about, or I, I think it was like somebody's idea of what it was like to be indigenous and it was like to feel present in the land that you're standing on. And I was like, yeah, totally. That's how I felt when I was in Peru. I, I come from Quechua mm-hmm. peoples. So yeah, like the Andean space, even when having foods from there, like makes me feel really at home. And, and also I am really curious, what is the process like? What is your creative process like when getting in tune with a feeling in order to write or perform? Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about food. I was, one of your questions was about like haunting and I was like, I am haunted by all the foods I haven't eaten from like my homeland. And so that's a separate thing. But I was thinking about that question. I really loved it. But in terms of creative processes, I think one of the best things, I think one of my favorite things about being a creative person or being an artist is the fact that processes changing, changes from project to project. It's growing and developing in the same way that I'm kind of growing and developing. And I think, you know, my first project's like Red Mistakes, that my first book I wrote coming out of like an MFA program. And I was pretty, you know, rigid in, in my practice in the sense that like I got up every day at like six in the morning, I would write for two hours, you know, I'd go to classes, I teach things like that. But it was like, I was so very focused on writing a book. I really wanted to write a book. And so, and that practice was very much like driven by mentors in my school in my MFA program driven by my beginning life and like 
poetry that's of the institution in the sense that like I was writing inside of the academy and I was also in an MFA program that really loved experimental writing. And I was so excited to be exposed to what it meant to write experimentally. And so since then, something that I've always just has been at the center of my practice has been pleasure and my own pleasure in particular and letting that drive a lot of the writing and a lot of the work. And so sometimes for, you know, you to one, it was the first time after I had um, gotten my papers that I was able to return to Colombia and return to, you know, or Batata, you know, return to like places where I was born and where my family continues to live. And so the poetry, that book, Udo One, my second book, was really about how do I process returning? I had finally got my papers and returning, and I found that experience to be incredibly difficult. I really didn't know how to process returning. Seeing my father for the first time, you know, meeting my father when I was 28, a lot of things had happened. I was an adult, and yet I felt like a child returning. So that project was a lot about how do I give myself a space of tenderness for this momentous thing in my life, the meeting of my father and my grandmother and my grandfather and my aunts and uncles and stepping back to the place where I was born. And so I was like, I need a space of tenderness. Can poetry be that space of tenderness and also be that space of, of the chaos that it, that, that, kind of ensues from that return. And so every project's been different. And then now I write a lot about Dora the Explorer. Like I have a whole bunch, I have this whole long running series of poems about Lord Dora the Explorer. And the poems have shifted to, they almost like don't want to be a book. They not just want to be like theatrical poetry performances. And so I do a lot of dressing up. I do use a lot of costumes. I do a lot of video work. And so that the practice is really just like letting myself be as wild and expansive. So like I draw and I paint and I make costumes and I weave and I photograph and I take videos and I do live performance and I do puppets and I just like do everything. And I really try not to limit or think about putting any kind of parameter or border around the practice itself. Sometimes it involves like last, I think during the pandemic, I really got into herbalism. And so I started writing poems about herbs and writing poems about weeds in my like garden and yard, you know, like chickweed and henbit and wild violets. And I wanted to learn about herbs. So I would write a song about the herb and then like perform the herb on Instagram. And, you know, so a lot of it is trying not to stay still inside of any kind of creative act. A lot of it is just about allowing myself to be expansive. I really like that. The no parameter, no border. You're definitely exploring every aspect of expression. And yeah, that that seems really beautiful. You said that you said that you were curious about yeah, I'm also curious about you. What foods from your homeland do you miss? For sure, which are like a pastry. Like I'm a bread person, like through and through. Uh hyako, which is like a kind of soup, Colombian soup. That is just like delicious and it's just like broth in heaven. Chancaca, which is this like sweet, it's just like sugar. It's just like delicious sugar. And it was, and it's interesting how those things are like bound together to like, like chancaca is like a cheap chow word. Like, and so like I knew the word and I knew the food before I understood indigeneity in Colombia and particularly in Bogota where I'm from. And like, 
it's interesting how like I knew indigeneity, my body knew indigeneity and understood it and understood like that, the colonial like implications of that through food and through language before it ever understood the actual like systemic power structure. And I find that to be super fascinating. And I, and poetry led me into that because I, I remember writing a poem in like my early MFA classes, poetry classes and writing a poem about Chankaka. And it was about my mother telling me like, oh, the street vendors, you know, Chankaka, 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 which is they're selling this you know, delicious sweet and me doing like investigating that word and then realizing all of its like colonial implications in Bogota. And the poetry led me to that understanding. The flavor, the sense memory led me there, not a class on decoloniality or a class on indigeneity or any kind of like formal learning structure, which is not to say that we can't learn about things these ways, but that... The word led me, the, the, the word traveled with my mother to the U.S. And then I was somehow returned back to the land through the language. Like dipping chocolate. It's just like all these decadent, delicious foods that I can make here, but it, it's not, you know, it's not the same. Right. I'm really fascinated by how you're driven to explore worlds within yourself that can be really scary and can be really just filled with a lot of emotionally heavy mm -hmm. trauma. Yeah. So it, I think also the aspects of the visualizations of the poems were really helpful to process that as well. When I was looking at the Red Mistakes book and then I saw the red stitching on the outline of the of the person on the cover it felt like like corporally right in representation of loss because when you miss somebody sometimes you don't even remember i personally like sometimes you don't even remember what they look like i i i feel like i've forgotten the faces of a lot of family members but i remember their presence and their body and it's like that scarring of the red stitching feels very accurate what did you feel like when you were manually stitching the outline of that character yeah Thank you for that. Like kind of that reading is so beautiful, that loss and the scarring and the presence inside of the loss. That's a really powerful reading. And thank you for that reflection. The That figure, it was so interesting when I saw your question about that figure, because so that a lot of that, the Red Mistakes book was about playing with a mistake, both the linguistic mistake or the misspelling or the dropping of words as quote unquote broken English, you know, whatever. And that, that figure is actually, there's another image in the book. And I was of where I kind of with stitching outline the figure of my green card, my permanent resident card, I was outlining, I would photocopy it and then stitch into it a whole bunch of different ways. And I would outline myself, you know, in that image. And so the figure is actually the reverse side of that, of me stitching into my permanent resident card. And so like, it's the backside, the underside of the stitched thing. So it's the kind of like the underside of this embroidery of the figure the photo of me in my permanent resident card. It's kind of the outline of that. And it's the hidden figure underneath of all this documentation, the hidden figure that's not legible by the state, the the figure that I've lost, right? Like the person that I'm no longer, that I am not because I've, I'm here, right? So it is a lot about loss in that sense. And 
there was something really I needed to write over and reconfigure the image of me that's been documented. I needed to carve myself out of that space through embroidery and through stitching because the way that we are like configured by the state I don't know if I knew this when I was making it, but when I look back on it now, I'm like, you know, what is our participation as like undocumented people and migrants? What is our participation in the legitimization of the United States as a violent nation state when we ask for permission to be its citizens and permanent residents? What are we participating in, you know, when we ask for that legibility? Now, at the same time, it's like, you know, there are realities inside of that that I want to acknowledge but at the same time there's something like difficult about that what we're butting up against inside of like if we recognize that we're in stolen native territory you know we're in some ways participating in that legitimization of the state so that figure underneath is like the rebel or the part of us that's still haunting and it's still gonna resist and refuse the state, right? Like, yes, sure, you can give us papers, but we're not going to forget and we're going to fight and we're going to resist. And so maybe it's an acknowledgement of that underside. And so that kind of creative act that comes from the creation of these embroideries or whatever, that's, I'm happy to be thinking about that with you now, because I don't know if I was thinking about that when I originally was kind of making it. I just needed to not, I needed to know that there was another self, another subject beyond what the ID card that was given to me said I was and what my name was and where I came from. Mm. Like I needed another figure to emerge that was resisting all of that. And I think that's what it felt like to make. I really admire how you are so corporally in tune with what you're feeling way before you even uh, want to analyze it or figure it out. I think often we're taught to do that in capitalism as to immediately figure out what we're feeling. And if it's something that goes in opposition to, I don't know, like productivity or just how we're supposed to just be in the world, it can be challenging to process that and People often don't, unfortunately, because we're not encouraged. Mm -hmm. So I really admire how you're so in tune with it. And I'm also blown away how when you were creating this, you were just following that. I think you've definitely contributed a really great piece mm -hmm. to, yeah, to yeah. our community. Yeah, thank you for that. And, you know, I there's this thing I was thinking about, you were saying... I remember somebody, I have a friend, their name is Jess Stokes, and they work a lot in poetry and disability. And they were, we, once we were talking about, you know, quote unquote blind spots and how, you know, we'll use that language colloquially, right? Like, oh, we have a, I have a, you know, this is a blind spot for you, whatever, like something you can't see. But in fact, blind spots, because the visual aspect has gone there, we know so much about it. Like, it's actually not a blind spot. It's a space of a lot of knowledge. And so the it's meant to be this thing you don't know about, right? It's like a blind spot in my knowledge or in my sight or vision, but it's not. It's, yeah, you can't see it, but you know a bunch about it. So I think it's interesting that you're talking about it that way because it's like, in one sense, it's concealed or it's unavailable through sight or through a particular kind of knowledge, but it's felt and it's embodied. And, and that knowledge is, it's crucial because in some ways sight is like, 
it's unreliable, you know? And so there's, and so I, I appreciate that connection that you're making there. Yeah. I totally understand. Sight is so unreliable. And I, I don't know if you've ever heard of the dancer Marina Magajes and her work on the body. She's a friend of mine. She's a dancer and often produces dance work about how the body's often, as a Brazilian American immigrant, her body's constantly like in the crossroads in the ways that is like very Ansel Duin in that our body grinds against the border. And currently she's creating a work on discovering that and uh, it's called Womb. I wish I could say more about it, but it hasn't been released yet. But yeah, it like when thinking about work like such, I am just really impressed by how our bodies have so much to say way before we even can put it into words. It's really amazing. So when you were fetching for words for your poetry, how did the homophones come about? Yeah, I think I think a lot of it came out of performance. One of the things that is both both exciting but also frustrating about poetry as it exists printed published poetry as it exists on the page is that it's too still it like I always get nervous about how it's going to grow and change and will it become a teenager and like a and then like an adult and then like a little abuelita like are the poems going to get stuck on the page in one way and I'm always really nervous about that and I think the homophones were a, a way of letting them continue to move around a little bit because th through the sound of it and I'm really interested in like th the way that sounds can like when you perform the poem, you can stretch out sounds. And I play a lot with sonics in, in my poetry performance. Like the poem gets to move and dance and shift and like, and be expansive and also be rhythmic. And so I, I think by playing with homophones, with playing with misspellings, with trying to play with the way that the language existed on the page was a way for me to insist on the playfulness, the vibrancy of the words on the page so that you couldn't ever totally pin down exactly how they might sound and exactly what they might mean. And that was the way that I was going to give them a little bit of like complexity and have them be a little bit magic after they were out of my hands. Because once they're in the book or once they're in the magazine or in the anthology, they're in somebody else's hands. And I get nervous about that. So I think I, I really wanted to make sure that they were still vibrating or vibrant. And so I think that's where the language play came from, really, was trying to send them off to the world with a little bit of tenderness. And, and what was it like to like finish that book, The Red Mistakes, when you're finishing like a poem or when you're finishing a book, what is that type of experience like for you? It's sheer terror. It's just devastating, like awful terror. Uh, Red Mistakes, I developed an ulcer right before it came out. I, I had... My parents didn't quite understand what I was doing or writing. Certainly my family in Colombia like hasn't read a lot of my work. And my mom knew I was a poet, but a lot of the book is about her and was like sharing a lot of her story in ways that I now find like ethically challenging because I didn't really ask her for permission to share some of the stories that are in that book. I think it was kind of a naive move from being like a younger poet coming out of a place where we don't talk a lot about the ethics of sharing stories. So it's something that I think about a lot. But that nervousness came from like, 
how will she react? Is this okay to say? I don't want to hurt anybody with the stories that I'm revealing and the way that I'm writing. Will anybody understand? Like the finishing is, it's never finished. It's just like somebody just takes it away from you. Somebody's just like, let me publish this. And you're like, all right. I sent out versions of the book to a bunch of people. And then it was finished when somebody was like, we're ready to publish it. I got very lucky and somebody published it right out of before I had graduated, which was amazing. But I could have kept on working on it. You know, I work on it until it's in print and then I perform it and change all the words. Like I'll read poems from Red Mistakes and just read a whole different poem that I've changed since then. But I think it's always pretty, they're never finished. They're always changing. The feeling is always pretty terrifying for me because I write a lot about my family. And as the, my own definition of like family expands, like who is my family and who am I writing for? Who is my community? I, the sense of responsibility has grown deeper and deeper. It used to be I was responsible to myself and my mom. Now I've written about my father. I'm trying to write about my great-grandmother. And then inside of that, I'm also trying to write about connections to like Black and Indigenous folks through displacement. So that responsibility I take very seriously. And it's always very scary and vulnerable. I always feel very nervous about wanting to make sure that whatever I, I'm putting in the world is ready to do the work that I want it to do, which is about liberation or the possibility of liberation. And so I've only grown more and more like anxious and scared whenever I put poems out or work out. It's also like loving and wonderful personally, because I do feel like a lot of love and accomplishment, but mostly it's about, is this poem ready to fight? Is this poem ready to take care of someone? is this poem ready to do the work it needs to do? And I'm not ever really sure. And I don't want to let anybody I love down. So there's still a ton of, it's just terror, just like straight up terror forever. So yeah, it's, you know, that's part of it. Yeah. I could imagine that. I Personally, like I, I don't have a book out, but I, when I was finishing your book specifically, there was that terror of like, okay, when this ends, what do I do? Like, how do I just sit with myself? And so, yeah, just like entering that world and coming out of it so different than the actual world that we live in now reminds mm-hmm. me of the open veins of Latin America. Like, mm-hmm. the, I mean, and about Galliano's statement that the world is upside down. Like this is not how we're supposed to be living for sure. And then, you know, like this podcast started because we, especially as an undocumented person, formerly undocumented person, I felt like during COVID and during the time that I was getting my papers, it often felt like we were walking through fire, walking through rubble or something that was already destroyed. And we ourselves were trying to just like make sense of that and create a whole new world through it. So yeah, that's why I decided to call this series Walking Amongst the Rubble. I'm wondering, what does that mean to you? How would you interpret that through your own lens? I was thinking about this. I This was a really hard one. I, I thought about this a lot. I was like, and in my mind, I like to think a lot about materiality and material conditions and the rubble felt like such a palpable image, right? Like the debris and like the detritus and then like the crumble of the rubble 
And to me, that rubble in my mind, it was always like pavement or like crumbly cement, you know, like the structures of like civilization. <laughs> that was the rubble for me. And and then I started thinking about, you know, how roadways and pavement and all of that can, is made of like fossil fuels and plastics. And then I thought about microplastics and the way that they live in our bodies forever and the carcinogenic aspect of that. And like, we are inside of the rubble. We are among the rubble. Like it's next to us. It's inside of us. It's underneath of us. It's in the air. Like the rubble is everywhere. So it, I feel like what I liked about that image and like to walk amongst the rubble a little bit, some of it is about recognizing the real danger that exists right now, the real precarity that exists right now that can't be denied. No matter how much pleasure I feel in producing some of the poems, the poems are about a devastation, a communal, ancestral, colonial, settler colonial devastation that we cannot separate ourselves from, or I cannot separate myself from. No matter how much enjoyment or pleasure I get from writing the poems or, per or performing them, we are living inside of like the legacy of settler coloniality, which is devastating and painful and ongoing. And so we are inside of that. We are inside of the rubble of that, like the legacy. And so to continue to walk inside of it, to continue moving forward, acknowledging the devastation, but still moving forward inside of it. However, that whatever that might mean for us individually or co collectively, I think the duality of that image is what speaks to me, right? It's like both to acknowledge a devastation and then to continue. Mm -hmm. I'm like 39 years old. So I've been writing poetry for a long time. I've been act being an activist and a community organizer for a long time. And I still feel like that drive for what is possible which I think I feel more now than I did when I was younger. And I feel that because I'm inspired by spaces like this and conversations like this. You know, I feel like that image of walking in the rubble is or walking amongst the rubble, I think is really powerful in the fact that it points to both things, like the devastation, but also the drive for something else. Even if I don't know what that other thing is, you know. Yeah, it's almost like as undocumented people, it's, and I hate to be ableist because I, I think that what I was thinking was probably a little bit ableist, but that drive and that sense of breathing is, we get so used to it that we normalize just walking in, in the rubble as well. And so I really like that your poetry is adding to the archive of like undocumented and immigrant writing in the sense that you're exploring aspects of pleasure and rest and really humanizing how we've been written about as undocumented folks, as immigrant folk. And you are wrestling that incredibly. And it, yeah, it's a force. It's a force. You definitely like your poetry is such a force. So thank you so much for just putting your work out there. Thank you for reading, for being part of it. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by the City of West Hollywood's One City, One Pride LGBTQ Arts Festival. Each year, the City of West Hollywood celebrates Pride with its One City, One Pride LGBT Arts Festival, which runs from Harvey Milk Day, May 22nd through the end of June Pride Month. Yeah. So I'm wondering, would you feel comfortable like reading a poem or like in any way, like like sonically producing it? So our 
listeners can experience this. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to. Axel Dent's mother. To take a photograph is to participate in another person's mortality, vulnerability, mutability. I. My grunt translate document. Mother. But I'm not feeling this as this book as a death. I. Belly cuss mother remove me. Mother. No, I've forgotten everything. I. Disfrace identity in orgasm. Mother. Who will do that work? Who will be the author? I. Suitors do not forget mistakes, okay? That was excellent. I haven't read that poem in a long time. Thank God, I love that poem so much. Thank you so glad. Yeah, the experiencing that poem sonically and also visually, and I'm guessing also in a performative way, it like all of it together is such a re-experiencing of speaking to somebody in English, like that's, yeah, in a language that's not your own, right? Mm-hmm. I think as immigrant folks, we've often been around family members that don't speak English well. And that can look very 2D to the world of like the English speaking mm-hmm. world. But to us, there is a compassion there because we know what it's like for them to have to speak a language that's not their own. And so I, and I really value how this poem is making, is doing justice to that, to that explanation of this isn't our natural language. And this is, a, and there's a reframing of how to see that conversation as well. When you speak English, what do you feel now as, uh, as a 39 year old? I feel like... That my, you know, I, English like Spanish is a colonial language and all I want to do is I want to terrorize it. You know, I want to break it apart and I want to, you know, this thing about the naturalness of it. It's not natural to English speakers either. Like the language is always morphing and changing. It's nobody's to own and it's Mm -hmm. nobody's to police how we speak a certain language, you know? And so part of me is always just like, this isn't, this language is alive and changing and I'm going to change it the way I want. And you can too. And it's like, whatever. So it's a lot of it is about the acknowledgement of the hardships that come out of trying to live inside of that language and also the pushback and the like resistance and the, no, I'm going to maneuver and tangle and terrorize this language because that's part of its vibrancy and its aliveness. So yeah, I don't, I'm still trying to resist it. I'm trying to resist this tongue all the time. And day to day, you know, I got to go to work and I got to do my job. But in poetry, I'm still fighting it. I'm going to fight it till the last book, you know. Nice. Nice. Yeah, that's, I feel like that, what we just heard is so much of your work, just fighting through anything that the world is giving to us in material form or in, yeah, that we're supposed to experience. You definitely like chop it up and 
have created your own language and have created your own visualization of what it feels like to be in America as an immigrant. So yeah, thank you so mm. much for all of this, for all of this work. Yeah, I want to go right now. Like, <laughs> like I'm so inspired. <laughs> I'm so excited. I uh, love that. That's like my favorite thing. Yes. I just like, you know, in creating language, especially because I feel like as you're getting older as an immigrant and you are creating a new space for your lineage in a world or in a space that wasn't yours to begin with, it can be really hard to see what that will manifest into. But when knowing that you have all the tools that you will need with your senses is really validating. Absolutely. Yeah. You had this question about publication and I was really interested in talking about that because I think one thing that starts happening, at least for me that I'm sensing now is that as a gender nonconforming femme person who's entering their forties soon, the space for me to write books and create is suddenly a lot less open to me as somebody who's no longer super young. And that's something that I did not expect in my early poetry career. I feel it palpably, the sense of like, oh, you've said what you've had to say. And I'm like, no, there's like more coming. And especially somebody who's trying to exist outside of the academy and exists outside of universities, because technically, you know, it's hard to name poets in their late 40s who are not also university professors who are still publishing and making work. And so trying to carve out the space for myself has been really the next chapter in the phase of my creative life, which is how do I continue to write, make my weird ass poems because... My poems are weird. My performances are weird. They're not like going to be in the New Yorker. Like nobody wants my shit in the New Yorker. I can't be like, I'm terrorizing English. That's not my place. I don't want to be there and they don't want me either. So it's like, where do I exist? You know, as I get older, as somebody who's like, I'm not eligible for DACA. I never was. And now I don't need it. But still, there's this weird space in which I'm still haunted by my own crossing. I will never be able to naturalize for very complicated reasons. My status is super precarious, even though I'm okay right now, you know? And so it's like, how do I continue talking about the way that it never ends? Like the trauma of of being undocumented, of being detained, those things never end. And I want to know what that story looks like when I'm 45, when I'm 50. I want to have books that are able to speak to that. And so it's like, for me, one of the things that I'm thinking about that made me think about this in relationship to your question was about turning to of all things like self-publishing as a a potential space because it means having total control over how I publish, when I publish, how I can distribute, how much money I'm able to make from my books or, you know, performances, which is very interesting because it's not the phase that I thought my poetry career would go towards. But knowing that I can do that and following actually other poets, younger poets particularly, move towards that being like, fuck it, I'm just going to publish my own chapbook because I want this book out there. Doing that as a poet with who has published with more established presses has become really exciting and motivating as I enter a new phase in my life as an older poet, you know? Yeah. Thank you for that. Thank you for providing what you thought about that question. I, I want to ask you though, so where's your work guiding you now? Where's your body gu- guiding you now as far as your work? Hmm. Well, I, I was pursuing a PhD 
at the University of California, Berkeley, and I was focusing on sonic poetry, particularly like the connection between Black and Indigenous poets in the U.S. And I love the work, but I just didn't want to write a dissertation and I didn't want to, I didn't want to try to become a professor. I wanted my own school. So, and I also wanted to be closer to home. So I moved, I dropped out of my PhD program. I passed my exams and I was like, fuck it, I'm done. I dropped out of my PhD program. I moved back to the East Coast and I want to start a school and a lot of my new project or a new project, new poetry, I don't know what it will be, is around what is school? What does it feel like to be in school? What does it feel like to be schooled? My own like memories of school, also interviewing other folks about their processes of being in school. And I'm trying to remember who it was who said it like the day the prisons are abolished, so are schools so or public schools in the sense of like schooling is a space of also where like a lot of violent shit happens. And so I'm tr- thinking about building a school and then I'm thinking about rematriating land. So I bought a few acres of land to rematriate to local indigenous folks. And so the goal is to try to write a book that can make that happen. It's, it should be easy to return land and yet it's not It's complicated because of the ways that there are things underneath of this land that need to be extracted before this land can be returned. So the hope is that the poetry will help guide that process and help build the school and then also help destroy the school and return the land. So a lot of the poetry is just keeping a clear hold of that vision, which is like if one of my books was about like returning home this book is this next book, which might take years to write is about returning the land. There's a whole bunch of like the people who lived here before me planted a bunch of English roses and like domestic, literally domesticated the land with these European flowers. And so a lot of it is about ripping out these flowers and these rose bushes from the land so that it can be restored and returned. And that's a complicated emotion. It's a, a complicated process to take a plant out of the ground. And so I'm trying to process that through poetry so that I can fulfill this like dream of building a school and destroying a school. So, yeah. I I really can't wait to see that project come into fruition. And also it was really interesting how, as we were talking about this, my end of your audio was so chopped up and we're talking about like giving back land. And I was like (laughs) getting back very choppy, like just like bits and pieces of what you said. And I felt like, yeah, that's what it probably feels like. It's like you're getting these choppy ends that are so delayed and you just have to make do. And so I was like taking some time to really like like fill in a lot of what you were saying and predict because... I love that. Yeah, it's like the receiver isn't... Or the. I would say like in this case scenario, right? Like capitalism is taking so long to give back that we are that yeah you just have to make do in your own world of what what you could possibly just see this yeah, is really yeah, awesome no, thank I, you so much for I, I love that absolutely no i yeah like the staggered sound i i hear you pretty clearly <laughs> just to be clear it's been really clear on my end so thank you but that staggering <laughs> sound is both like it slows us down and it forces us to create meaning inside of that which is like 
we have to create meaning inside of these pieces. We have to make imaginative leaps towards what's going to happen after capitalism, right? Like we have to be imagining that now and creating it now because we can't fucking wait. You know, we have to both like move slow, but move fast. But our imagination, our ability to like piece those things together is crucial. And for me, poetry helps me piece that together between the terrifying, like, you know, and dangerous world that we currently live in, I know something else is possible and I'm trying to push myself towards that inside of the fear, but be guided by this love of like us and what's possible for us and our people. And it is like a, it's a speculative leap to be trying to get fragments from the future and try to piece them together. So I appreciate that image you just crafted. Cool. Yeah. It's such a speculative leap and I really admire you. Yeah. Just pioneering that in such a as I'm sorry for using such a like weird colonizing term but you are stepping on somewhere <laughs> I get you I get you that's like on a whole different dimension do you do tarot by any chance I fucking absolutely do tarot I absolutely do tarot definitely There's okay this, so yeah yeah I, go ahead I, okay so I just got this card because I, I went to an oracle and they have a shaman deck and I got this card that was it was like a representation of growth but you're going to be experiencing going into different dimensions. And I felt like I never have realized, okay, that's what it feels like to grow. It's like you are Mm -hmm. entering so many different dimensions and realities, but yet we're on earth. So it's, yeah, you're doing that through your book. You're doing that through language. Yeah. I love that about the tarot that you just, yeah. I love that you brought that up because I literally was thinking that like we must have the speculative leap is like, there's this Afro-Brazilian theorist whose work I love. Her name is Denise, Denise Ferreira da Silva. And she writes like a lot of amazing theory about Afro-feminist politics and Brazil in particular. But she, in one of her last talks, she was talking about, she's like, I'm going to, I'm actually working on a tarot deck, which is brilliant because she's a scholar and a theorist and it's really dense writing and it's really important and interesting. But she was talking about how she wanted to, she's making a tarot because one of the most beautiful things about tarot is that it allows you to imagine the future and get there without having to be like, well, how are we going to do it? And like, what are the steps? And like, you know, what happens if this and what happens if that? The tarot allows your imagination to just jump forward into the future without all these other things. And I was like, that's so beautiful because it's like half the time, the issue that we have is that it's scary and it's complicated and it's not linear. So if we can just shoot ourselves forward, then that's fucking amazing. So I just, I wanted to bring that up because as I was talking about the speculative leap, I was thinking about De Silva and then you brought up Tara and I was like, damn, like we're definitely in the wires together right now thinking about that. Yes. Okay. So where can folks find you? Where can folks find me? Yes, I do. I post some stuff on Instagram. I'm often on there just kind of, you know, posting images or work. So on my Instagram, Lex Revoltosex, I have a really long poetry prose essay in an upcoming anthology called Somewhere We Are Human that was edited by and Sonia Nguyen, who I know I think yes. will be is part of the podcast. I love Sonia so much. They are so brilliant and powerful. So uh, one of my longer prose poem pieces in there, it's about birds. So, and I'm really proud of it and I love it. So that's kind of one of the longer pieces that's coming out soon. Cool. Thank you so much, JT, for all of this, for for all your art and all your presence. Thank you. 
Oh, thank you so much, Diana. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I love talking with you. I am excited to hear all of like all of the series because it looks amazing. Thank you for listening to Influx Collective, the podcast, Walking Amongst the Rubble, Undocu Queer Pride. To get updates on our upcoming episodes, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or join our email list at influxcollective.org.